We've basically had a, a debate about a referendum. There hasn't been any active campaigning for independence. That was former SNP Communications Chief Kevin Pringle, and we'll hear more from him later in the show. Hello, and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Derek Healy, and on this episode I'll be joined by Andy Phillip and Rachel Amory to examine and explain the past week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories, read for us by Morag Lindsay. The Labour Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, said the timing of the government's new windfall tax owes more to Sue Gray's report on lockdown parties than it does to economics. She said the cost of living crisis package is not good enough and said Tories should have concentrated on that instead of rushing it through after the damning Partygate report. Boris Johnson has stressed a vital need to provide Ukraine with fresh military support, including long-range rocket launchers, as Russian forces slowly advance in the east. The Prime Minister warned Vladimir Putin's invading army is making palpable progress in the Donbass region after abandoning its attempt to encircle the capital. Business leaders have told a US delegation the UK government and the EU will have to compromise to sort out difficulties with the Northern Ireland Protocol. The US group, led by Congressman Richard Neal, is in the country to discuss issues around the post-Brexit trading arrangements. Northern Ireland is currently without a functioning devolved executive. Thanks, Morag. Now let's turn our attention to what's been happening this week. We mark the very beginning of the week with a pretty significant milestone as Nicola Sturgeon overtook her predecessor and former mentor Alex Salmond to become Scotland's longest-serving First Minister. But the problem with big milestones is they can sometimes prompt some very uncomfortable questions. Nicola Sturgeon remains a remarkably popular politician, but the occasion on Tuesday was marked with a lot of folk contemplating what exactly she's achieved with all that time and popularity. Andy, you spoke to former SNP comms chief Kevin Pringle about that very topic and started by asking him if he had any inkling Nicola Sturgeon would one day become the longest-serving incumbent of Butte House. Well, it was hard to imagine anything of that nature back then because it was several years before we even had a Scottish Parliament, uh, never mind an SNP government. But I think as Scotland started to move politically, as the SNP started to grow, uh, as the Parliament came along in 1999 and Nicola was an SNP frontbencher from the, the start, it was very clear that she was a very formidable and talented politician. Um, and I think clear to most people, uh, certainly within the um, the SNP and probably externally uh, as time went by too, that here was someone who someday would, would become a party leader and given the success that the SNP has had, would therefore become first minister. So so certainly a very talented politician and that, that was clear really, I would say, from the earliest years and... Um, you know, going back some time, if if you wish to go back that far, uh, I think Nicola, uh, in the first general election campaign I was involved in, was the youngest uh, candidate, in, certainly in Scotland, possibly UK-wide, I'm not, not certain, but certainly the youngest candidate in Scotland, and got quite a lot of um, exposure, quite a lot of media attention on that basis back then, and it was clear, you know, right back then that this was somebody of real real talent. Presumably that, um, that start gave anyone in that kind of position where they were starting off very much the underdog and the SNP was still far from from any whiff of power in that uh, in those early days but tell me about that dynamic I mean, what 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 drives someone like Nicola Sturgeon I think ambition I think a very 
clear vision for the country. I think that's something that's been absent from some parts, if you like, of our, our politics, uh, whether in Scotland or UK-wide in terms of some other political parties in recent years, but certainly not absent from the SNP in terms of the vision for Scotland that it has, and therefore uh, is from Nicola Sturgeon uh, as well. So I think that, I think a very, very strong and clear vision for the country allied to a really formidable work rate. And that's the thing that I suspect maybe people not uh, familiar with the workings of politics maybe don't appreciate. It's just how hard it is, you know, really how grinding it, it can be. There's the sort of public element of it, almost the theatre element of it, First Minister's questions that quite a lot of people do watch. Um, but behind that, it's, it's just really tough. You know, it's really long hours, it's really, really hard difficult decisions uh, under all sorts of pressures, time pressure as well to arrive at, at, at decisions. Uh, so you certainly need the um, you certainly need to be able and willing to put in the hours and that's something that, that, that certainly uh, that certainly Nicola Sturgeon has allied with the, um, the ambition and the vision for Scotland that she has. You go back to a time that's much changed. Alex Salmond was, was the boss, he was the first minister. That, that relationship between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond is, is, is over. What impact do you think that that big shift in a personal relationship and just the power dynamics within the SNP and in the government, what, what impact has that had, do you think, on the perception of Nicola Sturgeon in office sort of since that difficult time? I'm not sure it's had an awful lot. And obviously she became the party leader and first minister in the immediate aftermath of the referendum. And, 2014. So that transition was arrived at. Um, and that obviously stands. That's the most important thing, notwithstanding anything else that, that's happened uh, since then. So I think, you know, prior to, to, to these issues that you've referred to, the transition, if you like, within the SNP, within the Scottish government had already happened. Um, and everybody was obviously, you know, very familiar and comfortable with Nicola Sturgeon as first minister um, back then in the, that aftermath of the of the referendum. So I think Scotland moved on post-referendum in a whole number of ways, uh, but not least within that, the Scottish government had moved on in itself. Well, political leaders obviously all want a legacy. Um, and for anyone who leads the SNP, the ultimate legacy goal would, of course, be success in an independence referendum. Alex Salmond can claim to have had brought the country to that point where there was a decision to be made. There's a shiny new bridge over the fourth, that kind of thing. Nicola Sturgeon has been in power the longest out of any first minister. Do you think there? Do you think when you look back though, is there a risk that there's no legacy yet? What What do you think is the the legacy up to this point of an of the Nicola Sturgeon era? Well, I think you can of course point to individual policies. Radical extension of childcare is really very important. It's not always necessarily the things that you can touch and see in the way, for example, in relation to the Queen's Ferry crossing. Uh, but I think what is significant and what isn't really much referred to is the fact that under her tenure as First Minister, then policy has been taken in to the fields of tax and welfare. And that's a very, very significant advance a, in terms of devolution, but also B, I would argue, in the direction of independence. So for the first 
long period of the, the Scottish Parliament, it, it had tax powers uh, originally as voted for in that referendum back in 1997, but they were never used. Uh, so I think given that, I think particularly in a UK context, a uh, unified tax and welfare system has been, I think, a key identifier of, if you like, a unified UK. So I think that uh, taking the powers that came after the independence referendum, which would never have happened had the referendum not happened and had a very, very high vote for yes not happened, uh, the 45%, then I think taking those powers that came in the aftermath of that re referendum and applying them um, in, a, I think, in a very, very positively, very extensively, uh, in terms of the income tax side of things, a more progressive uh, five-band income tax system. But in terms of the welfare powers, uh, seven benefits that are um, uh, in place in Scotland that aren't available anywhere else in the UK. Um, the Scottish child payment is probably the one that we're most familiar with. The game changer, as uh, anti-poverty groups have called it. So I think that, for me, that's the most important thing because, A, they have a big impact in, in terms of the welfare benefits and a more progressive tax system, a significant benefit on people's lives. But they take devolution way beyond what it was originally conceived as back in, even in the 1990s when this parliament was being, uh, was being set up. And as it happens, takes it in terms of that, if you like, uniformity of tax and welfare as a kind of identifier of the UK being a thing of the past, I think takes the country quite significantly in the direction of independence. You, you helped chart uh, a course to the, the legally permissible and agreed referendum in 2014. So as Nicola Sturgeon is building up that gradual case as, as we're talking about it, what avenue is there for her to, to bring that to a conclusion? I mean, everywhere looks like a bit of a cul-de-sac at the moment. What, what next? Well, what next? I mean, obviously what needed to happen was there needed to be an election result last year that delivered uh, a majority of MSPs elected on a mandate to hold an independence referendum, and that was achieved, as it was, of course, last achieved in 2011, after which, of course, the referendum took place. So that's the kind of fundamental building block, if you like, to have achieved that result, which was, you know, no, no small thing, uh, you know, after um, a period of what, 14 years in government at that point. So that was done. Um, some of the Preparation, of course, is in place as, as far as a referendum is concerned. There was the referendums bill passed in the last parliament that, if you like, sets out sort of general rules and kind of housekeeping arrangements, if you like, for any referendum that we may have in, in Scotland. Um, but the next thing clearly is the referendum process itself for IndyRef2. Do you think that there will be a referendum? I think well. I think for me, the, the man. For me, the, the 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 most important thing is that it takes place over the course of this parliamentary term, um, and I believe that will be the case. I think what we're looking at in the short term is probably two things. One, there will be a referendum bill brought forward to Holyrood. I would have thought in the, the pretty near future, uh, and it will pass. And of course, it, and it can't be legally challenged until such time as it's actually gone through all its stages at Holyrood. But I think probably as important as that will be 
the publication of the the, the, the the documents to support the case for independence that the Scottish government has been talking about, which will be, I think, in, in effect, publishing sort of a white paper, if you like, chapter by chapter uh, on different issue areas, different themes. And that will start to do, hasn't really been done now, really, you could argue, since the last referendum, actually, which is to start arguing and building the case for independence itself. Because really what we've had since, well, let's say since the Brexit referendum, if you like, sort of reignited the case for independence in Scotland, we've basically had a, a debate about, or a campaign for, if you like, a referendum. Um, there hasn't been any active campaigning for independence. Um, that will start to change quickly, I, I think, and I think it will be particularly underpinned by these documents. And I think given that we start off that process with support for independence at minimum, I think, 45%, whether you know the, the referendum result last time or indeed the poll that came out uh, this week, that's a very high base to begin with compared to the position last time round where at best it was about maybe 30% or, or something like that. So I think there's the process of the referendum, but I think there's the substance of the arguments that will come forward in the material that the Scottish government is uh, is planning to publish. We're talking about when Nicola Sturgeon became First Minister, there was a very clear plan. She was quite clearly marked as the natural successor to Alex Salmond. I mean, not, I'm not here to predict the end of political term, but it stands to reason there's going to be a, a time where Nicola Sturgeon doesn't want to be First Minister anymore. Do you, When you look through the ranks of the SNP and in the Scottish government, do you... Do you think that the succession plan is there? Is when you look at the benches around her, are you filled with confidence or alarm? Is that something that is should be a, a worry? I think it will it, it it will happen when it's the right time, if you like. You know, there's no point in talking about a, a succession at this stage when it's not happening at this stage. Um if you look at the kind of general period of of, of tenure, if you like, of SNP leaders, it's you know, generally it's been ten or so years. Uh, whether that was, you know, Alex Hammond had two, you know, uh, periods of, of of ten years, but his predecessors were about ten or or ten or so years. So, um, you know, I think this first minister's got a few years to go yet. Um, I think, unlike the SNP in the past, certainly the SNP. Before there was a Scottish Parliament, there were very, very few, if you like, professional politicians, elected politicians. Uh, the number of people to choose from was really quite narrow. Um, you know, when Alex Salmond was elected as leader the first time around, then the two candidates comprised what half of the SNP's then Westminster group. Um, such was the you know small number of elected politicians that the SNP used to have. It's different now. You know, there's very very large, obviously, parliamentary groups uh, at Holyrood and at Westminster. So I think, come the time, and this is not the time, uh, to paraphrase somebody, <laughs> this is not the time. But the, 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 you know, this isn't the time for a, a, another SNP leader because I think this this one, this first minister's got got some years to run. But but given that 
pool, if you like, of talent around about her, and given that very large number of elected politicians uh, that can provide the choice of candidates when the time comes, then I don't, you know, I think the point being that there will be a, a good choice to be had okay. in a way that, you know, was less the case and certainly in decades gone by. Okay. Just um, finally, really, just looking at the the, the next the next stage in, in, in Nicola Sturgeon's political journey, uh, do, you, do you see her as the first minister and SNP leader going right the way through to the next election? Yes, I think that's that, that's possible. It would certainly, um, I think it would reflect you know what she wants to do. I think anyway, but obviously only she can answer that question. I think it probably comes down to to, to what it is she actually does want to do herself. Um, she can be in this job for as long as she takes the decision that it should be handed over to somebody else. But um, I think certainly she wants to see this referendum process through. Um, she wants to contest a referendum and she wants to win a referendum and all of that um, is the business of this parliament rather than the next parliament. So I think probably what she's focusing on primarily is, is what she's seeking to do um, in this parliament and obviously take decisions uh, depending on how things go. But, you know, as we speak... The First Minister is really focused, I think, on the business of this Parliament, both the referendum and looking to win an independence referendum over the course of this Parliament, also other major policy challenges to and big ambitions like a national care service. So I think she wants to take all these things forward and then, of course, she'll be in a position to make a judgment about her own future on the back of all of that. But I think as we sit here, as we speak today, it's a pretty positive outlook for her. Well, some interesting points being raised in that conversation. Rachel, Kevin saying there that Nicola Sturgeon has a few years left to go yet as First Minister, and some interesting discussion as well on whether the SNP have really done enough to prepare for another referendum. What did you make of what we heard there? It was obviously there, there has been chat of being there being an independence referendum as early as next year. If we look back to this amount of time before the 2014 referendum, I feel like we were much further ahead in terms of campaigns were starting. We knew sort of the wording of what the question was going to be, the date of the referendum. And at this point, we don't know any of that. So it, it does feel like we're sort of, well, how are we going to get to that point by this time next year? It doesn't seem like the same trajectory, does it? It, it feels like we're much further behind. But he was saying there it could be before the next election. That is that is a few years away now. So that, that potentially is more plausible, perhaps, isn't it? Andy, I wonder what you make of that question of an independence referendum next year. Uh, speaking just before she became our longest serving First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon said Scotland's more ready than ever to become an independent country after the nation building being done by her government. Uh, Kevin spoke about some of the tax and welfare policies we've seen being brought through. But how much substance is there to that nation building claim? Nicola Sturgeon's been uh, on the world stage quite a lot recently, uh, whether it's been COP26 or a recent trip to America. Um, and I was just looking at a pretty interesting column that we had in the, the, the Courier pages from former Blair spinner John McTurnan just the other day as well. And he had some interesting thoughts on this very point about how uh, the longer the Prime Minister or First Minister or whatever um, goes on, the more interested they are in foreign affairs than domestic affairs. And I think that because they, they're treated a bit nicely abroad and there's a 
you know, problems stack up at home. I mean, you just have to look around at the moment at the domestic situation, whether it's ferries or ScotRail. Uh, I'm clearly the the pandemic has has taken a you know a mallet to a lot of the day to day life and the economy and everything like that. But you know, there are quite a few problems that are not of the pandemic's making that need to be dealt with. Um, so on one hand, we've got this nation building idea where she's courting opinion, uh, whether it's in Europe or on the world stage, we've got all kinds of things going on in the moment where there's like NATO, our place in the world, that kind of thing. Um, but if there was a referendum, that's all fair. That's all fair and well, but you know, the, the, the record of government will suddenly become thrown into really sharp relief because people will think, well, you know, you have to demonstrate that you can run the the real the basics well, and if you're going to inherit an independent state, that's all got to be just kind of I mean, that should just be taken for granted almost. That's got to be in in a row. And there's so many un, 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 unanswered questions too. And these are all things that Kevin Pringle was talking about a lot, or at least alluding to the need for a new white paper, things like that, um, which is really hasn't really shifted the dial much since 2014 on that. You said it yourself that surely the legacy of every SNP leader or the legacy they want is going to be to be the one who secures independence. Uh, but as Rachel talked about, right now it looks difficult to see mm. in any path that really, at least in the timetable Nicola Sturgeon has set out for, for next year for that referendum. Again, Kevin spoke about some of the individual policies, things like childcare, moving you know over those welfare payments. But I wonder what you see as being the sort of legacy of Nicola Sturgeon. And are we are we years away from having to figure all that out, as Kevin suggests? Probably. I thought it was interesting that, that he um, he talked about the things that aren't tangible, like the childcare, things like that. That There's also one thing he didn't mention, which was, um, I thought maybe he, he might have, it was the mm-hmm. National Care Service idea as well, trying to build on a problem that was uh, really exposed in the pandemic um, with... The, the structure of the care system, uh, elderly care, um, trying to put it on more of a, a, a level footing like the NHS. Um, not heard too much about that recently, but um, that's certainly something that will be looked at with interest. Um, perhaps a little bit like the free personal care package that uh, Labour can can claim to to in their legacy. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe there's something about Salmond that he, he liked to point at the big shiny things like like uh, the the bridge over the fourth is look what I've done, um, but maybe that's just a, a mark of the different styles of their of their leadership. Nicola Sturgeon's uh, thinking about something perhaps a little bit more, not so tangible. On on independence though, um, Kevin Pringle was was uh, interesting when he pointed out that as long as it happens this parliamentary term, he didn't really address my point about do you think it'll be next year. Um, but then moving on to, you've got to get the work done. We've talk, we've campaigned about a referendum, but not independence. So he's clearly thinking about if you want that legacy secured, you're going to have to up your game. Rachel, if I, if I was to ask you, you know, to sum up Nicola Sturgeon as first minister, what, what do you think you'd point to as as our, our potential legacy points? Um, some things that she's going to automatically have a legacy for is being the first female to hold this position and being the first minister who was there during the pandemic. But beyond that, um, her critics would obviously say ferries, ScotRail, uh, drugs deaths, uh, education, uh, any waiting times. I mean, all those things are not good for her. Um, And that will be something that she would need to 
really turn around in the next few years if she's going to have a positive legacy on those aspects. We talked a little bit about her predecessor, Alex Salmond. Um, I think he'll be waiting in the wings if there's no, you know, he wants to make political capital out of any uh, failure to, to secure a referendum next year after that big promise. Um, do you think that's something she should be worried about? Um, is, is there any prospect of uh, Alba making up any grounds? I mean, certainly we didn't get that at this election or the last one. Um, could this be a, a danger at all for, for the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon? I feel like if Alba were going to be a danger, that would have happened by now. They've had two elections now to do something about it and done very badly in both of them. So I feel like, yeah, if if if... Alba and Alex Salmond were to be a real threat to the SNP going forward, it, we would have seen a bit more happening by now, even just one candidate getting elected in one of the past elections, and that hasn't happened. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't worry too much about that. But it is always something to bear in the back of your mind, isn't it? Because there will obviously be people who are very pro-independence and are not happy with how things are going in the SNP. So that is always something to think about too. Well, look at uh, You have to look at UKIP and sort of how they were just an absolute non-entity until suddenly they were. Um, but it was more of a kind of a movement, you know, the, when it came to pushing the Conservatives into Brexit. So I, I, I don't know if I could draw this, the same strict parallel, but I think it, you know, you can't really write off uh, a movement that shares the same goal as the SNP um, as, as somehow maybe not one day just like suddenly becoming a vehicle. But yeah, two two tests so far and, nothing to show for it yet. One of the things I found really interesting in that interview was Kevin's answer to the, the question of a successor. And we hear that a lot, you know, that there isn't an absolute front runner at the moment to replace Nicola Sturgeon. At one stage, it looked as if that could be Derek Mackay, but for obvious reasons, that's that's no longer the case. Uh, and another area where we've seen this being, you know, coming up is, is, is with Partygate. There's been some suggestion that Conservative MPs have been a bit reluctant to kick Boris Johnson out of Downing Street because there's no clear replacement for him at the moment. Uh, you know, Andy, this, the Sucre report came out this week and we saw details of excessive drinking, people being sick and getting into scraps, partying till 4am and being rude to, to cleaners and security staff. So, you know, talk us through this. How How is Boris Johnson still Prime Minister after all that? I think that was the, the nation's collective uh, unanswered question. Um, it is absolutely baffling how um, I th basically Britain is punch drunk in my view and they, people just don't really know what to do anymore. Um, we've been told so many times that uh, Boris just needs to get on with the job and he's he's just getting it done and people have got so much on their plates that they, they don't, there's not an avenue to, to get rid of him unless there's a an election tomorrow. The, the, the party is so afraid of being you know, blasted off into insignificance at the at the ballot box that he um yeah, he he's just manages to he's Teflon. And that is not a good thing. To borrow a phrase from what was once one of Boris Johnson's most senior officials, has he got away with it? Is that it now? Is it done, do you think? Yeah, that that was possibly the the remark well, there was many that, that kinda of made my I could feel my pulse starting to, to to go up, my blood boiling slightly. Just that you know, I think we've got away with it. Comment. It's exactly what runs to the heart of the attitude at the top of government. It's just, can we get away with this? And can, you know, the Boris Johnson affable buffoon character sort of guy get away with it just by, well, it's just Boris. 
Um, and then we move on to something else and nothing about, I mean, the, the idea that he, you know, he says, I've taken full responsibility. Well, not so long ago, taking full responsibility would have actually meant, you know, someone would have to have lost their job. And if the buck stops with him, as he keeps saying, why on earth is he still in charge? And who's going to push him? Rachel, we've seen a number of MPs calling for the Prime Minister to go. Uh, that, that number's slowly creeping up, but let's be honest, it's still a long way away from the number that would be needed to trig- trigger a, a leadership contest. Uh, so what do you think is going on here? You know, has, has public anger just fizzled out you know, with how long this has been kind of dragged out for, you know, waiting for the Sue Gray report, waiting for the police investigation to finish? Has it just fizzled out over that time? I think in terms of the public, it's really not. It's more inside the party who's willing to stick their neck out and say, no, I'm, I'm done with this. That's more the problem there. But like you said, I mean, others sort of further down the food chain than Boris Johnson have toppled over Partygate and yet he is still here. And if you look on social media, the public are still really angry about it. I think more so than it's just the way he's sort of treating the top of government like a, a sort of a boys social club, isn't it? And I think as well, there's this perception now that he did not experience lockdown like other people did. I mean, everybody across the country had to give up something, even if it was just a small thing, everyone gave up something. And it just feels like those at the top of government didn't do that and therefore they didn't experience lockdown and sort of the harshness of lockdown in the same way. So if they didn't experience it that way, then how are they able to sort of understand just how impactful their rules were. So that's, I think, as well in the public mind too. So yeah, I think in terms of the public, it's not fizzled out at all. People are still very angry about it. But how how do you get that through to government and get action done then to to get him to resign? I don't know how don't know how you can do that now at this point. It would have happened by now, wouldn't it? Where do you think we go from here? I mean, one of the suggestions I've seen is that, you know, who wants to take over? We're a few years, few years away now from a general election. We've got a cost of living crisis. So anyone who might be thinking, oh, you know, this could be my time. Actually, it's going to be a really difficult, difficult time to come in. Uh, Labour are slightly ahead in the polls. You know, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? So it's going to be difficult to convince somebody to come forward. So are we now in a position where we're just going to be waiting with, um, you know, this, this government kind of, limping along and struggling along with the public not really behind them or are they going to be able to turn that around do you think? Is there, is there any scope for that? It is a difficult one. I mean the the obvious for a while was Rishi Sunak and that has very much now gone for him now after the party gate scandal and, um, and with his wife as well. Um, but if you look at after Brexit um, and David Cameron stepping down, that was a job that was not going to be a, no one was going to succeed out of that and when Theresa May took it up you, you saw her fail at what she needed to do, essentially, when it came to Brexit. She didn't get Brexit done. And that's, that might happen again. It's like that same thing. Like, how does the person who takes this up succeed when they've got an impossible task ahead of them? So, yeah, it'd be very difficult to find someone who's willing to say, yeah, I want to do that. I want to be the one who's set out to fail here. Well, Boris Johnson might be trying to keep the party atmosphere going, but one politician who's very much feeling the heat in all this is Douglas Ross. 
Uh, he was one of the first and most prominent politicians to call for Boris Johnson to quit over Partygate. But then, like a lot of Conservatives, changed his mind after the war and Ukraine broke out. Um, he appears to have changed his position again after the Sucre report was published and now says the Prime Minister should quit, but only after the war is over. Uh, in a lot of ways, Douglas Ross has been put in a, in a really difficult position in all this, but an awful lot of that, you could argue, is of his own making. Um, Andy, we ran a piece after the election asking whether Boris, uh, backing Boris, was Douglas Ross's biggest mistake. Uh, where, where does his latest position rank, do you think, and all that? Yeah, if Douglas Ross um, kind of doing a succession of, of media interviews uh, the other day, and it, it it was almost like he sort of got ground down into this position. He started off sort of with the holding line, you know, um, no, he's, he's got a job to do, and I, I said what I said. Um, but he's... He's a hostage to fortune now because if um, if Boris Johnson was say at, at a committee level decided to have lied to Parliament or misled Parliament, then that's a, a resigning um, a resigning matter, and Douglas Ross is again exposed. Um, this idea that he should be, but this is the logic that Douglas Ross is trying to argue at the moment is that Boris Johnson is the absolute man to be trusted in a time of war in Europe but not when it's all over and everything's back to normal and we're all happy and peaceful again. I mean, that that is a really bizarre statement to make, that uh, surely at this time of crisis you need the best person in, in, the, in the hot seat. Um, it, it's a really strange bit of logical gymnastics that I, I don't... I can't really see how that's tenable. And, and it doesn't reflect very well on, on Douglas Ross, um, who is, as you said, having a bit of a tough time trying to walk that tightrope at the moment. Um, and he can't can't keep flip-flopping, so he's, he's, he's stuck. I mean, I don't know how much traction this is getting yet, but one suggestion we've seen repeatedly from rival politicians is that Douglas Ross is losing control of his own party, with several of his MSPs taking a different line in Partygate to the one that he's taking. Um, we saw that claim repeated on Thursday after Derek Wan who the Courier previously exposed as a man behind an anonymous troll account on Twitter, became the opposition leader on Angus Council. Uh, local MSP Graham Day said that because Mr Ross has, in his words, refused to stand up to toxic figures like Mr Wan and Boris Johnson, uh, the public have been basically forced to put up with them. Now, it's worth saying the public did return Mr Wan as a councillor this month. Uh, but Rachel, how fair is that criticism of Douglas Ross? I mean, he was one of the first to call for Boris Johnson to go... And it's a difficult position for him to be put in, isn't it? He has been put in a very difficult position, but when he first called for Boris Johnson to go, he got like absolute pelters from his own party, especially south of the border. So to have gone through that and come out the other end to then just back down on it, it just, it, yeah, it's, that's quite a strong step to take. But like you said, this is now going down to local politics level with uh, Angus Council. And... I know during the election campaign, it kind of was just fuel for the opposition parties to the Conservatives saying, well, this just shows that this kind of mentality, this sort of toxic behaviour goes right to the top, right down to the very bottom. And this kind of just proves that it does. And yeah, Douglas Ross is sort of in the middle here. And as the leader of the Scottish Conservatives surely would be the one to, to not have sign off on these things, but to sort of at least be aware of what's going on and what the public perception is there. It just kind of feels that that's not there when you've got somebody who who has been exposed as a Twitter troll by, by yourself, Derek. Um, it, yeah, it does show that there's maybe not that grasp on leadership that maybe we potentially thought there was. 
we've seen a lot of talk of leadership, haven't we, during all this, during Partygate. You know, the talk of, you know, you know the buck stops basically with senior leadership, political leadership, and official leaders as well um, at Downing Street. You know, is it a case that the party has been running amok uh, under Douglas Ross's watch? I mean, is that, is that a fair suggestion to make? They did do well at the election last year and the local elections this year. Maybe not quite so well, but that probably was because of Partygate. But maybe it is unfair to say that it's completely gone to chaos. It's just that there are small sort of facets like Derek Wan in Angus Council where it is a bit more of an issue. Andy, we saw some reports that there were backroom conversations taking place over Douglas Ross's future following the election this month. Um, he's, he's come out of Partygate pretty dinged up, really, hasn't he? Um, how safe do you think his leadership is looking at the moment? Well, I thought um, something that Ruth Davidson said was quite interesting the other day on, on that kind of uh, theme. You know, Of course, she used to lead Scottish Conservative Party and is now on the... The, in the House of Lords, uh, she's very much still um, a go-to person when people want to kind of test what the, the mood is in the wider Conservative uh, party in Scotland, or sort of small C Conservative as well. Um, she didn't say Douglas Ross by name, but said that she was really getting frustrated with the behaviour or the, the, the lack of action from her colleagues on the green benches. Of course, Douglas Ross is an MSP in the Highlands and Islands, but he's also an MP from Murray. So that's that's him. He's in that that group that's frustrating Ruth Davidson by uh, saying, calling out Boris Johnson's behaviour as being, oh, that's terrible and stuff, but then doing nothing about it. Um, now, if that's if that's a little kind of straw in the wind, then, then so be it. I don't, I'm not sure if it will actually turn to anything else. But uh, you can tell that there is there is clearly some dissatisfaction in the party at all levels about the way that this is going. Douglas Ross, um, no one's publicly saying anything about that at the moment. But if if Boris Johnson carries on in this sort of downward tra- trajectory, um, then it will start to to come back to haunt them. I think. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a fascinating one to watch. I, th- I think we're nearly out of time this week, but before we go, I'm going to put you both on the spot mm-hmm. as we play the successor game. Uh, given there's been a fair bad chat about that this week, so I'm going to ask you both to predict the successor of Nicola Sturgeon as first minister and Boris Johnson as prime minister. And I think we'll we'll keep a clip of this audio in the Stushy Vault so we can one day return to it and see how you got on. But uh, Andy, let's start with you. All right, for for um, for the UK level, um, basically back to my suggestion that that uh, Britain is completely punch drunk. So uh, it'll be President Jacob Rees-Mogg, I think. <laughs> um, that's the only way that this is going, uh, and we'll all just say, "Oh, we of course we saw that coming." And then um, in Scotland, I oof, this is a tricky one. See, I th- I'm gonna I'm gonna go slightly off here and say that there's a chance that the SNP might not form the next government. And so the next SNP leader will come up through the ranks. And I would say someone like Kate Forbes, perhaps, uh, after a break. So who, who are you suggesting for the next first minister then? Are you thinking, you know, oh, there's, there's, there's two know. obvious candidates in isn't there? But who, who do you oh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, because he'll have, he'll have disbanded <laughs> Holyrood as his first act in government. And Rachel, what about you? Oh, it comes to to the UK government. Um, there's a lot of very ambitious people in that government who would want to sort of be seen to cut the ranks. Maybe I know like Liz Truss, as much as she's made a lot of mess, she she's one that would probably want 
to push through. Um, so maybe one to keep an eye on there. Um, yeah, again, in Hollywood, it's difficult to know, isn't it? There's so many. Kate Forbes is probably a good shout. Um, there are a few sort of sort of lower down ministers that might sort of come through the ranks, like I don't know, Mary McAllen or or Mary Goujon, perhaps. But that's maybe a bit further down the line than immediately, isn't it? Some some very interesting answers from both of you. Well, are you, well, you Derek, I'm you're not, not you're, you're not getting away I'm with the, it. I'm the worst. I don't have to answer. <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> I, th- I think President Jacob Rees-Mogg sounds, sounds like a fascinating story for us to write. Um, so who knows? Um, no, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's, I think that that's so mixed at the moment, isn't it? It's such a mix up with everything that it's difficult to predict what's going to happen next month, never mind what's going to happen two or three years down the line. So, yeah, that's my very non-committal answer. Ah, but do you think, what 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 about the, the, the sort of... Um the curveball about the SNP not actually forming the next government? I don't know. I, th- I think I think it's possible. Um, I think uh, it depends what happens, obviously, over the next couple of years. But if there's, if there's a big policy that people could get behind, um, I could see a pretty significant shift to Hollywood. I could definitely see that happening. Um, but yeah, it all, all depends how it goes, I suppose. Uh, I think I think if it's going to be an SNP figure, we both said Kate Forbes, and I think that seems to be the the most obvious one at the moment. Um, I think there's, there's a good chance of that. I mean, if you look at the polling, the reason I, I actually purposely kept it open to Prime Minister rather than just Conservative leader, um, because if you look at the polling at the moment, it looks as if uh, it could be a Labour Prime Minister next up. But of course, that relies on, you know, what's going to happen with Keir Starmer. Is he going to survive Beergate, as they're calling it? Uh, the, the chat is, I think, that there's a few very ambitious MPs potentially looking already at whether they might fancy a run uh, and become the next Labour leader. So that's a very difficult one to predict. There's all sorts of variables going on there. Um, So yeah, I think we'll need to wait and see how they all get on. But that's all for this week. Uh, So just time to thank Andy, Rachel and our producer Chris Finn. And of course you for listening. We'll be back next week with more. But until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following the Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.